I would like to welcome all of you here this evening and to give a special thank you to Jack and the staff at Spirit Rock for inviting me. I noticed, as, as you may have done as I entered the door, that there's a little sign above the door which says that 497 are permitted into the hall. I did a count. There are 498. <laughs> so I'll just say shalom, salam, good night. <laughs> the theme to explore with you a little this evening is the uh, area of security and uh, service. And I would like to put this period of time with you uh, evenly between uh, these two areas. And my immediate uh, attention goes back to uh, 9-11 and two of the good supporters of uh, Spirit Rock, Hal and Gail, had kindly invited me to uh, spend uh, a week, some quiet time uh, with them. And on that particular day, I was in American airspace flying towards uh, San Francisco. And many of you, of course, will remember very vividly that day for yourselves as well. And then the pilot informed us that we, without any explanation, that we had to return to London Heathrow Airport. 57, 58 planes out of London Heathrow alone fly into the United States every day, plus everywhere else. So you can imagine the tremendous chaos and confusion, but nothing like the horror and terror and the obscenity that took place in that country on the day. And in period afterwards, how easy it is, and I use it as a small illustration of what we're talking about in security, with security, how easy it is that we feel hurt, we feel bruised, we feel battered and humiliated, in fact, by the circumstances that take place, as well as the sympathy for all those who have endured so much suffering. But what terribly easily happens in our relationship is that the self, the I, the me, it arises and it generates, in, as a consequence, the sense of other. And when you and I can't cope with our experiences, when we're having a hard time feeling hurt and terribly distressed by what happens, then of course the inner life moves. It has to find the fault. It has to find the blame and it will turn its attention elsewhere, onto others, wherever he, she, they uh, might be. And of course it starts and initiates a further terrible entanglement of human relationship and all the barbarism that will come out of it. And there's something about us as human beings, as women and men on this earth, that we get caught in the terrible psychological imprisonment of self and other. And when you and I are pointing the finger, wherever it might be that we're pointing the finger, let's never forget, three fingers are pointing at ourselves. And in this turning of the attention to the other, there is a gap. And in the gap that's created, the tendency is, of course, that we identify ourselves, whoever we might be, on being on the side of the good, the right, and the others are wrong. And once one has that, and once one believes that and keeps reconfirming that, uh, again and again, then the terror of the world 
has to be unleashed. Whether it's the terror of the organization or the terror of the state, the consequences of it is suffering. Suffering on the ground and suffering from the air. And somehow you and I, as men and women of this earth, really have to take a deep look at this whole idea, this whole construct, which is generating so much suffering nationally and internationally, between the idea and the belief of what's good and what's right and what isn't. Because the actuality is that with regard to security in life, our security is inseparably, and never forget this, is inseparably bound up with the wishes of others. A human being, whether the individual or the group, whoever or wherever, no matter what size it might be, no matter how powerful it might appear, its security, its feeling of safety, its feeling of self-preservation, and its ability to, to abide without threat, is bound up with the intentions, the wishes and the motivations of others. And we keep forgetting this. And we keep thinking, if I can hurt, harm, destroy, change or whatever others, then somehow or other that will bring me greater security. There's never been any evidence for it historically and there's certainly none of it today. So we live in insecure times because we're tied up so painfully in this self-other. And one of the things which matters, whether we're talking just personally with some, another human being who we're having difficulty with, or whether we're talking internationally, never forget one thing. Who we think others are, they are not. And who they think we are, we are not. Who I think you are, you are not. And who you think I am, I am not. But rather than us have the opportunity to reflect and get behind the stereotyping, the labels, and all that we put on each other as men and women of the earth, we tend to believe in them. We reify, we reinforce. And it's a great quest of a human being to really, really, really realize once and for all I am not the label. I am not the label. And if I can look at that and another human being and say, you are not the label. You are not what I stereotype you to be. You are not who I project you to be. You are not who I think you to be. There is the chance, there is the opportunity for some genuine meeting. But my God, we have to change first. We have to change. And we have the audacity and the, and the arrogance to keep telling others that they have to change when we're so clearly self-evident that we are unwilling to change. Who are we to tell, keep telling others? And sometimes in our wish for security, natural, all too, all too human, it's, it, we are so inseparably bound up in this interconnected uh, network of things. The very genuine, authentic, interest in the welfare of others in real terms is our interest and unless we make some shift emotionally, psychologically spiritually, economically, globally and politically, unless we make some shift in our side from us as a more powerful, wealthier community on this planet, unless we make that shift and really realise the welfare of others is our welfare this nightmare will continue 
but we're not willing to do it. We just want to improve our standard of living. We just want to make ourselves better off. And we can't connect that this gap, this difference, which blocks compassion and it blocks love and it blocks true empathy, we can't accept that somehow we who have more is at the expense of others. Something has to change. And my goodness me, there's no better place to start than here. This is an extremely privileged corner of the world. When I first came here, I heard the name Marin, and I didn't hear it properly. I thought it was more in. There's also internal areas as well. The internal areas which takes place, and as Jack was referring to in his talk with you earlier on, is where are we going to find the security which is within ourselves? What's going to help reveal and show that? We're so much on the impact of other people, and when we can't cope with that, just our neighbours, just our friends, just our loved ones, just our lover, our partner, our children, our parents, or whatever... When we can't cope with who they are or how they are or whatever, this reactivity that goes on inside ourselves makes others blameable. And once that area of the movement of the mind with the negative force that's generating through makes an other blameable, we don't see the other. It is then stopped. And when we feel, when we feel sorry for ourselves, when that emotion arises and we feel sorry for ourselves, we then become the victim. And we're trapped in this picture of ourselves, putting blame on others, feeling to be the victim because we feel sorry for ourselves. And there's some human dig- dignity which is lost for us when we carry around this feeling day in and day out of feeling sorry for oneself, feeling sorry for oneself. When are we going to stop? this identity because it will always generate blame to men, women of past and present and future because we're once again in the self-other imprisonment and all Dharma teachings are to bring this to a halt, to collapse it to liberate the heart from this duality it's the major task of all of us here I go to, um, as I can mention, I travel around, as you can see from the, uh, the dress, um, kind of bit east, bit west, bit nowhere. <laughs> My mother is a good Roman Catholic. She said, why aren't you a Roman Catholic? I said, I'm a roaming Catholic. <laughs> she said, it's not the same. Sometimes in the self-other, speaking of the, the, the Middle East, <coughs> and I'll tell you a, a just personal story here for a moment. There are some who will take one side, the side of the people of, uh, of uh, Israel, and then be against the other, called the Muslims, called the Arabs, called the Palestinian community. These people are a pain in the neck. 
far too many of them are around taking sides. Then there are, then there are the others, who are the so-called liberals. And the liberals take the side of the Palestinians. They take the side of the Arab community. They're also a complete pain in the neck. And as one of the great uh, Dharma teachers of the past uh, uh, said from the 7th or 8th century, never forget this, being for or against is the mind's worst disease. And it's often uttered by those who have no contact, no connection, no direct experience with a clear heart and mind about what it is to be in that, in that region. And let me just give you a little indicator of what I refer to. One of my recent visits, because the, my Israeli brothers and sisters can't go into uh, uh, Palestine because of the military occupation, my, myself with my uh, 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 British passport, and of course the British have their filthy fingerprints all over this region, that we went into Nablus. I was going in with the Palestinian driver, we got through the checkpoints, it's, it, it's not easy, and it was a bit more difficult this time because I had a German documentary film guy sitting on the, on the back seat and hidden in the boot of the car with cameras and everything. And I told him, whatever, whatever you do, don't open your mouth. I'll answer the questions, just shut up. <laughs> and we got right through, into the, right through into the edge of Nablus. It's right down in the valley. I, thought, I said to him, my God, we've, we've got through no big hassle this time. And then suddenly, out from driving through the olive grove and between two uh, old walls standing at 100 years, 400 years, or whatever, four young Israeli soldiers came out from behind the wall. Rifles, all the... Uh, outfit to uh, protect themselves and uh, age what 19, 20, 21 the officer was 23, 24 years of age and he said to me what are you doing here? and I said with a grin I'm a tourist (laughs) he said hasn't anybody told you there's a war on (laughs) I said, yeah, yeah, I heard about it. It was in July. Filthy hot day. 35, 40 degrees, or what's that in Fahrenheit? Well over the 100. Hot. <laughs> then the Israeli officer said to me, look, there's four of us. He said, it's a really hot day. Could you go into Nablus and get us four cartons of orange juice? I thought, first thought arose, sod it. (laughs) Sod it, you didn't hear. You're occupying another country and you want me to go and get you some orange juice? (laughs) I turned to the Palestinian... Uh, driver and he uh, looked at me and of course it could be a serious matter for him he's Palestinian you've got to drive in drive back 
So I just gave a shrug of the shoulders. He did his usual checks, got on the mobile, checking out who I was, blah, blah. And then he let me, he let me through. So we're driving down the track. Fast, I can tell you. Driving down the track. I turned to the Palestinian driver and said, what do you think? We passed the shop. And I thought, guy, four young guys, shit scared, could be killed any day. And they said that. The people around here just want to kill us and nothing else. We stopped out of the shop. He, Palestinians taking the risk. I ran into the shop, four cartons of orange juice, ran back, turned the car around. I thought, young guys, forget the uniform, forget the self another, there's something else. We drove back very fast. They came <laughs> rushing out from behind the wall because they wondered what was going on with the rifles and stuff. Stopped the car, I ran down the window. Here's your four cartons. Shalom. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> I only use it as a small example. Sometimes we're on the horns of, of the dilemma. Do we listen to the hard voice inside of ourselves? Do we listen to the voice of self, other, us, them, or whatever? Or do we find a way to listen inwardly and respond in the moment, even though it's risk? <clears throat> risk for the Palestinian, risk for myself. Risk for the soldiers. And just respond to the voice of kindness. These are four guys, they're scared. They're right in the front line. And then I said to these two guys before we drove off, two soldiers, four soldiers, I said, you get these four cartons of orange juice on two conditions. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> One is, you don't shoot any Palestinians. Two is, you don't get shot. <laughs> then you can have it. And say, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the self-other duality, as I referred to, our relationship with others and our relationship with ourselves, in that area, others are ourselves and ourselves are others. How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? So then we listen to the deep place, the non-dual. We listen to the place free from the, the baggage and the, the bothersomeness of the self-other. And then we want to take a look at our life. But if we're going to take a look at our life and look at it in relationship to service, that looking at our life is going to take some fairly hard questions. And it's going to take some questions from those who have more probably listen to this, my God, Christopher, who was he in his past life? Karl Marx? Anyway. <laughs> well, some of us are keeping his voice alive, and anyway, all right. And so we need to look at where we, where we are. And just um, uh, yesterday, uh, my friend Gail, he, uh, gave me a book with a, a cutting. Uh, um, a piece, I think it's from the UN. I just want to read it, read it, read it out to you because I think it uh, uh, relates to those who live in more in... Uh, <laughs> it says, this village, it's using the globe, global population here, as 1,000 people, all right? And I won't read the whole thing, but it says, in this village of 1,000 uh, people... 
it says just 200, that's 20%, of the people dispose of 86% of all the wealth. 20% are consuming 86% of all the wealth. While nearly half the villagers are uh, living or eking out an existence on less than $2 per day. It says further on with regard to the nightmare of illiteracy and numerous other problems. Out of the 1,000 people in this world, using global population, fewer than 60 people have a computer. Only 24 out of every 1,000 have access to the internet. And more than half never made or received a telephone call. I bet they're not living in Marin. (laughs) So, if the heart is going to move, if there's going to be a shift out of us and them, self, other... Something has to take place within us and take place because of the resource of the planet rather quickly. And there is a tradition, and it's a very important and rather powerful tradition, of a way of relating to this world in which somewhere or other you and I who are in the land of the privileged actually say, and this will take some courage and determination, I am going to draw a line on what I have. Period. I'm going to draw the line from tonight, because we can't wait for tomorrow, on what I have. Now, that's, what's that going to do with our desire? Because we, so much and so easily, I think have made ourselves, and it's a rather shame on us, I feel, rather subservient to having and owning and possessing as the primary reason for our existence. We've sold out. And this movement that goes on from within is like a bottomless pit in that no matter what we actually have, and I know there are poor people in this room and people are living in uh, poor accommodation and people who don't have accommodation as well as those who are privileged. I know the whole range is in the room. I'm not naive. But this constant pursuit to have more, to feel better, is bottomless. There is no way that the human mind, with this movement towards having, owning and possessing as a reason for existence, can possibly know where the line is drawn. Because it's never attended to it. It has no track record of it. It's been a constant movement towards. And we never, never, in this depraved psyche, we never know when we have enough. How can we serve others if we're trapped in this bottomless pit within ourselves? 
And there's always something in this world of other places, situations, goods, items, houses, cars, possessions, money, whatever, keeps impacting on us. We say, I want more. I want more. I need that. I must have that. I could get that. Maybe I can afford this. We've sold out. And then we have the audacity, the audacity in the Western world to say we're going to impose on the Western world two-party state, corporate control over all natural resources and consumer values because that's the only way to live. We have got to show something different. You and I have got to show something about service and love and connection. And that means I'm going to have to feel a little bit more insecure. Sometimes people come, people say, here, I I listen to your voices. People will say to me, Christopher, once I've got a little bit more (laughs) money, once the stock's gone up a bit better, once I've paid off a bit more of the mortgage, once I've lowered my Visa card debts or whatever, once I get a bit more clear in there, then I can do something. It's a a rationalisation. It's an avoidance. Because if we're constantly trying to make ourselves secure, no matter what point we come to, the dear old consciousness out of habit will move on again. And again. And then we find our life a kind of mixture, because I know many of you are engaged in service here, speaking to Jack a few minutes ago, and, and he's asked, he told me in past times, people engaged in service, and I know more than half of you, three-quarters of you, maybe all of you are engaged in it in some form or other, aware of the great things that you do in this world. But how easy it can be that the time is minimised, the time is reduced, the time is cut down simply because of this desire for security. We mustn't be afraid to live. We mustn't be afraid to, 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 to feel the edge of insecurity you get used to it. It's only a sensation. <laughs> Not easy, but it's only a sensation. <coughs> I was reading, Richita was telling about it. I was reading um, a, a, a book, Jack would appreciate reading it. It's called The Buddha in the Jungle. And it's an account. In, from about 1850 to 1960s of various Buddhist monks wandering around Thailand. And it's an account of their relationship with the villagers, with the uh, tigers and the elephants and the buffaloes and the, and the snakes and all, all, all of that world. And there's one little story in there, which being the ex-monk, blah, blah, I um, really appreciated because it's a good reminder about what insecurity is all about. And the monk had entered into a river and was standing up to his waist to take a bath when, unbeknown to him, a crocodile starts gliding straight for this monk, standing up to his waist in water, and the monk just stands there. Now, some of you can talk about your insecurities, but I think you'd agree this is on another level. 
And so he just stands there, chant, doing, and he did some chanting. And the crocodile puts his head on his stomach and his monks stroke him on top of the head. The thought that arose in my mind was, my God, the, the crocodile might have its jaws wide, wide open. Where would the lower jaws be? Well, I know what you're thinking. When it's a monk, he hasn't got much use for them. <laughs> Believe me, as an ex-monk, monks are very connected to that part of their anatomy. <laughs> so a villager spots this. And he runs back to the village. There's this monk standing up to his waist in the water. He's got a crocodile in front of him. He's stroking the head of the crocodile. Boy. Villagers came out. They said to him, and he came out of the, gradually eased himself out of the water. If he'd got into fear, got into anxiety, and started to swim away, it would have cost him his legs, his arms, his life. And when he came out of the water, the villagers said, Tell us your mantra. And sometimes we meet in this world people who show an extraordinary degree of inner security, can stay steady in the moment, stay steady under the pressure, and in that depth of equanimity show simultaneously loving kindness. That's what we call a developed, mature, civilized human being. That's something. And I think if you and I ever have the privilege of uh, meeting with men and women who are willing to take the steps, take the risk, to be steady, to put themselves in situations, we can learn a lot. We can get a lot of inspiration, a lot of, uh, a lot of insight. And there are people in this hall here doing remarkably beautiful things in life. And we can all learn from such people. So any kind of change, to get to the point or labour the point a little bit, little bit, may well require some decision, some firm intention in our inner life, as I said before, to kind of draw the line. And if you know, put hand on heart, you know you have enough, you have more than enough, then why give more attention more energy, more focus, more time, more views, more opinions, more of your life, more of your life to have in more. When you know, and I know, there's enough already. And something about that quiet discipline <coughs> to be true to that which is the great ethic of life, to be true to that, then opens up the life for service. Because one says, I have enough. I don't need any more. And once that ethic is there, once that great value of transcendence of the consumer world is, is there, then the consciousness has extraordinary potential because we're free of lowering the quality of our life by submitting it to con consumer ownership. It's a great thing to do.
When I was in India after 9-11, staying with, with my Muslim friends in Budgaya, lots of Muslim friends, we have a school, I'll speak to you about it in a moment or two. I said I didn't want a Buddhist school because if one has a Buddhist school, then in dear Mother India, there could be times in the future where it goes from a Buddhist school to conflict with the Hindu community, conflict with the Muslim community, conflict with the secular people, etc. So I said, I want interreligious, interfaith, not just propagation of Buddhist values. Just after 9-11, with my Muslim friends there, poor, they're poor, they're desperately poor. If they were earning $2 a day, they would feel incredibly rich. And I said to them, did you hear about 9-11? And they all said, via the translator, yes, Guruji, they call me Guruji, yes, Guruji, yes, Guruji. We we heard everybody, everybody heard. So what was the response? He said, we felt terribly sad, Guruji, terribly sad for the people of America. Our hearts went out to people in New York, to all those families. Terrible thing, Guruji, terrible thing. But they, he said, or they said, but Guruji, American people, because they don't make the distinction, American people came and bombed the villages in Afghanistan. They bombed people like ourselves, Guruji. And so all our sympathy went. The heart closed. We have to find ways to open it. big task so we take a look at ourselves and we say to ourselves okay I don't want to live in this self other I see the, 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 night, the nightmare of it I come, I come from England the leading Russian sociologist said the country which has been most at war are the English on average 56 years out of every 100 since 900 AD We've been at war. Most war-mongering nation on the earth are the English. So we know about war. My grandmother had six brothers. They all died in the war. We know about war. We said, I don't want to live like that. We're in the new millennium. We've got to change. We've got to live civilized. That means, as I say, the drawing of the line, looking at that, so that heart and life can open up to what service is. But even here, in the beauty of service and all the actions of what service is, we could be very careful with this. Because in service, there is the possibility, the danger of a new duality form. We, who are the servers, know better than those who are served. And we can create another gap. We can be keep telling people what they should do, what decisions they should make. We can keep advising them. We can keep putting pressure on them. We, the servers, get the idea. We know what is best for the served. What would it be to even question that, even with the good intentions? 
not to harm, not to cause suffering, but the good intentions for the welfare, but we can carry with it our baggage we know best. We have got to listen. We have really got to listen to those we serve. Really hear their voice. Give those men, women and children an opportunity to express to share what's going on with them, to really connect. So even the view, the self-other, in its best potential, in the conventional world of, I serve, you other served. I give, you received. Even this is to be looked at. So that once again, we can look deeper. So deep, in fact, there's no self or other. There's no server and served. And this generates an extraordinary empathy, extraordinary deep sense of our being together. Our actions for others are for ourselves, our actions for ourselves are for others. There's no difference. And when the heart awakens to that and it feels that, it feels the, the freedom of it, it's such a blessing to be out of the imprisonment of self and other. Then love comes easy. Easy. Okay, enough. Thank you for lending an ear. <laughs> speak about the school two minutes yeah. <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier uh, Zach very kindly invited me to come to uh, share the evening uh, with you we have a school I just mentioned in Bodhgaya it's for the poorest of the poor how do we determine the poorest of the poor our beloved school teachers go to the huts the homes and just check you just walk in and you can see they're desperately poor, they're desperately poor. And so most of the families are terribly poor, eking out this existence in that tiny minority. And so a friend, Rick, from Los Angeles, started in 1992 after one of my uh, retreats in Budgaya, a class with a few kids. We used a room in a temple. Friends got together. He and I got together. We said, let's really get something going in this village. The outcome of it was, it grew. India being India, we said, we said, Westerners, we want an interreligious school. The head of our school, in fact, currently is a Catholic nun. And we've got Hindus and Muslims in the school, etc. And we said, 200 max, 200. Because we didn't know if we could get the funds together. It cost about $40 for $0 per child to keep a child in the school for the year. Not a lot, $40 for a whole year. It's less than a dollar a week. But we weren't sure because we don't have money and whether we could do it. So every year I'd go back and they'd say, Oh, Guruji, it is very hard to say no in India. <laughs> 250 children this year, 300 children, 400 children, 450 children last January. <laughs> oh my God. 
so that's why I'm here. <laughs> and we've made, you can always uh, contact me on the emails, Christopher at insightmeditation.org. We have made a lovely documentary by Tom Riddle, who works for the UN. And he and I put a documentary, half-hour film together. Tom sat a retreat 12 years ago. I don't think you mind me saying he'd had depression for years. He sat on the retreat. The depression collapsed. He hasn't had depression since. And this was expression of appreciation by giving back to the village because something that a big change inside of him. So we put this documentary together. Half an hour it lasts. And we go into the school, into the village, interview the children. We speak about the sacred place of uh, Budgaya, uh, etc. And the children are just magic. And we have a cultural festival and there were 55 schools in this cultural festival, <coughs> kind of competition, and the school came in second. You can't imagine what these children dance like. Eh? You know, forget Hollywood. <coughs> Go to Budgaya. It's <laughs> much more uh, progressive. I mean it. And, <clears throat> but it requires you know, support. So your kindness <clears throat> and your support is immensely appreciated. And we want to thank you, while you, since you've arrived here, I might add, all those cars, we really are grateful for your donation. <laughs> <laughs> while you have been sitting here, <laughs> Spirit Rock has auctioned them. They didn't save any for you, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> right. But there's a lot of compassion around here. So we have a lorry, or you call it a truck, don't you? We have a lorry, and we will take you down to St. Francis Drake Boulevard. <laughs> all the way to the boulevard, so you can hitch home. No problem. All right. And there's a metal detector on the other side of the door there, by the way, I forgot to mention. So when you pass through, because we're all familiar with metal detectors, usually it's to go into somewhere. This is to go out. So to get out tonight, you'll have to take off your watches, your, your earrings, all your jewellery, all those metal things that you carry. It's a special metal detector. It picks up all American Express cards, Visa cards... <laughs> All right. So there's a huge bowl, I hope, uh, out there. But to, to, seriously, for a, a moment, the kindness and the support and what you uh, give to the school and all to, the, to the, the children. These are children who are in desperate poverty. Without education, those children would be beggars on the street. Many would have died already from malnutrition living in heartbreaking uh, conditions. And the school is quite remarkable for the upliftment of the spirit and all that's coming out of it. And there's a lovely big sign in the, in the school, I should think the, the women here will appreciate very much. There's some truth in it. And the teachers had put it up. It said, the girls in our school, when they go home, they share all their literacy skills with their family. 
But when the boys go home, they forget. <laughs> Some things don't change, I have to say. <laughs> so your kindness and your love and your support means a, rather than more in, it would be less in, and it would be more in over there. So Thank you. Christopher, I've never, I've never heard you do the whole televangelist thing, but I'm impressed. <laughs>